0: Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We have the good fortune today to have with us Tal Ben-Shahar, He's a sort of giant in the positive psychology world. He's a speaker and an author. He wrote Happier. He wrote Choose the Life You Want. Um, He's recently gotten together with Angus Ridgway, uh, and together they have formed the company Potential Life. It's a leadership development organization. The book that Tal and I are talking about today is The Joy of Leadership, which he wrote with Angus. How Positive Psychology Can Maximize Your Impact and Make You Happier in a Challenging World. I'm I'm really excited to have Tal with us, and I'm sure you will be too. Tal, thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me here.
0: My pleasure. So I want to sort of go through the elements of the book, and and one of the uh, uh, foundations of this book, in a sense, is that when Angus, who used to be who used to lead the strategy practice for McKinsey in Europe, Middle East Africa, um, he saw that there were great strategies from his perspective, and then some got uh, implemented by executives and some didn't. And that in his view, uh, the difference between those leaders and organizations who were effective at implementing and executing strategy and those that weren't was their leadership ability, their ability to Influence the thinking and activities of other people in order to achieve shared goals. And I'm, I, you know, I, you weren't necessarily involved in that research, but you're obviously intimately aware of it. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, what it is that you saw in them, and this may just funnel into the conversation about the book that really made the difference between them saying, "Hey, here's a great strategy," but somehow I'm not getting it accomplished, versus you know, we're executing and implementing.
1: Yes. So, you know, it's very much about the mindset. I mean, so what do we see our role as as a leader? So Jack Welch once said that he sees his role as being the secretary in the organization, reminding people to do things. And, um, you know, many, many people, many of us or lay leaders have a, a misconception of what leadership is about, that it's, you know, it's about standing on, you know, Mount Sinai or Mount Rushmore. And basically talking about the grand vision that you have and then uh, uh, remaining, living happily ever after, or at least famously ever after. Uh, whereas, you know, leadership is, uh, is in the details. You know, le- leadership is about executing. It's about doing. It's about having the mindset and the, the humbleness uh, to, to, to get your hands dirty and to, um, and to remind yourself and others what, what needs to be done.
0: You know it's interesting because I think and this might be a little departure and then we'll get back to it the the humbleness that you talk about for leaders I know a lot of leaders who have it but they also have along with that this very healthy dose of confidence right this this paired combination of saying I'm I might have humility but I also believe in myself and I believe I can get stuff done and I could believe I could drive things and I'm wondering what you've seen in your research that that allows people to have both of those because we all know humble people who don't get anything done because they don't believe in their own capacity to act. And we all know confident people who, who, you know, um, step over the line and go into arrogance as opposed to just sort of confidence. What's that balance that you've seen?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's a balance that has to exist and it's a very hard act to, uh, to, to actually implement. Um, you know what one of the things that collins and porus in their book uh, built to last talk about is the importance of not succumbing to the tyranny of the or but rather embracing the genius of the end and and i can think of no better example of where this genius of the end is necessary than in 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 being confident and humble uh, at the same time and again it's it, it's very hard you know i In my upbringing, one of the stories that always captured my imagination from a very young age was the story, um, talking about how important it is for us to walk around with two pieces of paper in our pockets. You know, in one pocket, we need a piece of paper that says, for me, the world was created. And in the second pocket, there has to be a piece of paper, um, that says, I came from dust and I shall return to dust. I love and that. having these two pieces of paper is so important because, you know, when, when you're overconfident, well, you need to go to the, you know, to that pocket that says I came from dust and returned from dust. When you're not confident enough, for me, the world was created. And having that balance and, and being able to simultaneously hold these two seemingly opposite uh, extremes is, is extremely important.
0: Right. I love that. So you say that at the core of uh, the, the, the core, the essence of leadership is personal flourishing, right? And that's that's very much a foundation of, of the book and your belief. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, you know, so there is a lot of research, obviously, on the on the relationship between success and happiness, uh, success and, flour- and uh, flourishing. And the, the, the research basically points to a very simple truth, that success does not contribute to happiness. Um, you know, you see many successful people who are, who are not doing very well, psychologically speaking. Um, and, and you see people who are not well, well off financially who, who are very happy. But there is a relationship between these two variables and a very important one. So it's not that success leads to happiness, it's rather that happiness leads to more success. So what we see is that if we raise levels of well being, even by a little bit, and we're talking three, four, 5%, what you see immediately. Is that creativity, innovation levels go up significantly? What you see is that teamwork in an organization improves, relationships in general get better. What you see is that motivation levels uh, go up, resilience levels, being able to overcome difficulties, physical health uh, is actually enhanced. So you see all these factors that are uh, improved, enhanced when you increase levels of, of happiness. Now, all these factors that I mentioned, whether it's better relationships, better teamwork, whether it's higher levels of innovation, creativity, being able to sit up, uh, think outside the box, whether it's higher levels of motivation, all these factors go hand in hand with great leadership, certainly today in in the 21st century. So when we increase flourishing, we also improve people's performance as leaders.
0: You know, it's interesting because on the one hand, what you're saying, which we know, right, and you wrote the book on happiness, so I'm going to believe you here, which is that happiness leads to success. I've also heard, and I'm curious to get your perspective on this idea that the pursuit of happiness doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. Good. And so can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So there's a real paradox in this whole happiness field. You know, So on the one hand, as I mentioned, it, it's, it's good for us to increase levels of happiness beyond the fact that it feels good to feel good. It also contributes to all these you know, wonderful factors that, that, that we all want and crave. At the same time, there's research showing that people who directly pursue happiness are actually less happy, that it actually is associated with loneliness, uh, with anxiety. So what do we do with that? Do we fool ourselves and said, well, I'm pursuing happiness, but not really, you know, that's, that, that's probably a, a difficult to do. The answer or the, the resolution to this uh, paradox is that we need to pursue happiness indirectly. Meaning, um, we know what contributes to happiness. So if if I experience a more meaningful life, if, if I experience a sense of purpose at work or in the context of my family, I'm happier if i exercise regularly and take care of my body i will be happier if um, i cultivate my relationships spend quality time with people i care about and who care about me that will contribute to to happiness if i engage my curiosity if i'm open to experiences that will contribute to happiness so if i pursue these things they will indirectly lead me to happiness. Just saying, I'm gonna go for happiness, that, that really doesn't help. You know, the metaphor I like to use here is of sunshine. You know, if I look directly at the sun, then um, it's gonna hurt my eyes. However, if I look indirectly at, at the rays of light, perhaps through a prism, then I'll see and experience a beautiful rainbow. So indirectly pursuing happiness is like, like observing, enjoying the rainbow.
0: You know, it's it's, and I share this with you because I know a little bit about your background. But in Judaism, this idea of and ishma, which is you know, like you you listen, you 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 just do first, you act first, and then you notice the impact of that action later. And and I've always thought that to be in sort of an essence of Jewish practice, which is here's a whole bunch of practices that will lead to connection, which will lead to you know, Good. religious engagement, and it's the But it's the practice that gets it. It's not just the intention.
1: Yeah, you know, this is uh, perhaps the most important uh, lesson when it comes to bringing about change. You see, when it comes to, to change, Western philosophy had it wrong and religion had it right. So Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, you know, 2,500 years ago said, to know the good is to do the good. To know the good is to do the good. Now, Socrates was, you know, uh, a smart, a smart person. But in this instance, he was wrong, very wrong, in fact, because, you know, we all know, for instance, what uh, uh, we should eat, what what, what is good for us. And yet, you know, we all sin and and eat things that we shouldn't. We all know that we should always maintain our calm and composure, even when when all around us have lost theirs. Uh, And yet we lose our composure at times, later regretting it. So to know the good is not necessarily to do the good. Now, religion had it right. Why? Because religion understood that you first have to do the good and then you learn the good and then you know the good. So they turned this equation upside down and today research is showing just how right this approach is. So we know if we wanna change neural pathways in our brain that leads to lasting change, uh, we need uh, rituals, just like in religion, to do something over and over and over again. And that's how we change. That's how we also change, literally, not metaphorically. That's how we also change our mind.
0: Um, it reminds me of the story that Sylvia Borstein, who's a Buddhist teacher and writer, um, shared with me where she was with her, I think, four-year-old grandson. And they had walked up to this temple. And there were a number of big stairs to go up to these big, huge wooden doors. And and her grandson held her back. and And she said, you know, what's the matter? And he goes... He says, I don't like those stairs. And her response was, oh, honey, you don't have to like the stairs. You just have to climb them. (laughs) And it's a sense of, and I think this is actually profound for leaders who often spend a tremendous amount of time trying to convince people of what they should do, when instead maybe the winning formula is to just say, here's what we're doing. We could talk about why afterwards. You may need to know enough about why so that you feel like you're willing to do it. But you just have to do it even if you don't like it, and we'll see the impact of it afterwards. And it's a little hard to get away with that as a leader because everybody has free will and they might just cross their arms and say, I'm not doing it. But in a sense, the 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 motivation, and the drive comes after the action, not before, which is another sort of one of those ironic conundrums.
1: You know, as, as, as you were described uh, telling that story, I was thinking of research uh, on procrastination. Uh, and, you know, over 80% of the people see themselves as procrastinators it hurts our well-being obviously you know we you know pushing things off and one of the main characteristics of procrastinators is their belief that in order to do something you really need to want to do something um whereas those who don't procrastinate say okay you know I want to I don't want to I'm going to do it anyway And very often with the doing also comes the motivation. So it's not motivation leads to doing, it's rather doing leads to motivation.
0: Yeah, and actually the moment of motivation, like you don't actually need that much motivation. I went on this bike ride that was in the rain, it was cold, it was in the rain, it was an amazing ride for about 20 miles. And I came back and someone in an apartment building and someone in my apartment building looked at me and I was muddy and I was wet and... And he said, wow, you're really motivated to go out in this (laughs) stuff." And I thought about it and I thought, you know, I only needed 30 seconds of motivation. I needed to walk out into the rain and start pedaling. But, you know, 10 miles in, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is dumb. I should go back. I mean, I was 10 miles in. I had to go back 10 miles. But I didn't, you know, it's not – you don't need motivation every second. When you sit down to write – once you're writing, you're writing. You don't need to be continually motivated, but you might need motivation for those three minutes when you open the computer and sit down in your chair and write the first few you know, sentences. Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. And you know, in procrastination, researchers talk about the five-minute takeoff technique, which is exactly that. Just sit down for those first five minutes or go on that ride for five minutes. And usually, more often than not, it, it, it then becomes self-perpetuating.
0: Right, right. It's great. So um you have a sharp model in this book, right? Which is strengths, health, absorption, relationships, and purpose, which all lead to this, you know, profound flourishing leadership. Can you just give us a sentence or two about each and then we can sort of explore a little bit more depth?
1: Sure. So what, what, what Angus Ridgeway and I wanted to do was identify the the areas or the unique characteristics of of great leaders in in today's world, and we identified these five elements as not the only ones, but the ones that account for most of the variants, that explain most of what distinguishes the the best from the rest. Um, So the first one is strength, and that is about focusing primarily, not only, but primarily on the things that we're good at and the things that we're passionate about. There's much more return on investment, return on effort when we focus on strength second it's about health it's about learning to manage our our energy learning to deal with with stress eating more healthfully exercising of course on a regular basis uh, then we have absorption absorption is about being mindful being engaged being being present you know this is so critical in today's world when we are we're disengaged you know we're a, dis, a distracted uh, society with so many uh, distractions all around us so uh, Absorption is important. Um, the R of SHARP is for relationships. In relationships you know, is the number one predictor of well-being. No surprise, it's also one of the best predictors of leadership, our ability to engage in both positive and authentic relationships. And finally, it's about a sense of purpose, uh, having a sense of meaning uh, in work, at work, uh, a sense uh, being connected to what it is that we're doing.
0: I have a question for you around this as I'm listening to it and and it it it's not a question I've written down, but it got triggered when you sort of said we found these five five things and i've you know at this point for the podcast probably interviewed a hundred and something people, and so many different people have these research based you know here's the six things here's the ten things this is what we notice is the difference between mm-hmm. star performers and average performers yes. And I and I and I'm asking you this not as a challenge, but as a colleague in this space, you know, there's so I don't even know exactly what the question is, except that there are so many different views, research based views on here's what I have seen distinguishes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that, because I imagine you would have a good one and you're very research based as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at a lot of the research that finds, you know, the three things, the five things, the, the 10 things, there is a lot of overlap um, uh, in, in that in that field, because and, and this is one of the things that we talk about in the book. You know, we're not about reinventing the wheel. We're simply about taking uh, what's out there and, and synthesizing it in uh, in an accessible, accessible way, because the real challenge of of, of change is not the knowing it's the, it's the doing and what will contribute to doing is having something that is accessible and, uh, uh, and can be implemented with, with relative ease. Um, so a lot of these models of, you know, the five things, 10 things you, you will find that there are, there are, there are overlaps there. Yes. Once in a while, you know, someone pushes the boundary and, and introduces a, a new concept, a new idea that hasn't been introduced before, but th- but that's quite rare. Uh, our book, Synthesizes rather than invents.
0: Great. So let's go through each of these again, just for a few minutes, because with with a focus on the implementation and the execution, because I think that's a theme throughout yes. the book. It's a theme in this conversation. It's a theme in my work. Um, starting with strengths. So you know. We all know it. I mean, I, I will stand up in front of an audience of a thousand people and say, how many of you have a performance review? And everyone will raise their hand. And I'll say, how many of you have – don't, we don't even call them weaknesses. We call them areas for development. So it's not a weakness. It's almost a strength. It's about to be a strength. Don't worry. Give me a couple <laughs> of minutes. It'll be, it'll be a strength. And then I'll say, raise your hand if that thing in some language or other has been there for the past 10 years and everybody raises their hand. So – so there's an acknowledgement that I've got these weaknesses, and I'm probably not. Maybe I'll go from a C to a C plus, but I'm probably. I'm not going to go from a C to an A. I'm not going to be wildly successful because I have gotten so good in my weakness, and yet, it is almost impossible to get away from trying to develop the things that we're not strong in and the messages that people give us, you know, in performance reviews or in feedback or everything focuses on not what can I do better than I'm already really great at. It's how do you fix those things that you're kind of miserable at? And I'm wondering what it takes to change that philosophy or that mindset or our own internal compass that says, I want to get better.
1: Yeah. So, um, first of all, it's something that's really embedded in us from a very young age. So in school, you know, you have a kid who's, uh, say very good at mathematics and not so good when it comes to language skills. And what was the focus? It was language skills because mathematics, you know, he'll be fine. He won't need to, to worry about that. By the way, you speak
0: English very, very well.
1: Thank you. It took me years to master. (laughs) So, um, so the, um, the, the the challenge is how do we get out of that mindset that we that that that, that we've inherited uh, from from our past? Easier said than done. And the, the the way to do it is also to think about sports. You know, I was uh, I was recruited for squash when I w- when I went to college. The football coach didn't even see me. Why? Because you know I'm 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 five seven and, and scrawny and in sports it wouldn't even cross your mind to 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 come to someone and said well you should you know really bulk up so that you can become a football no play squash play to your strength the thing though is and and this is important when we're talking about focusing on strength we're not talking about ignoring weaknesses and that is why many people are afraid of going in the the strength based approach in in that direction because they're thinking but but you know i uh, I'm not good with people. You know, I need to work on that. How can I become a manager and only focus on my strategic thinking abilities? Well, Peter Drucker said it best, as as, as he often did. He said, "You need to focus on your strength while managing your weaknesses, and that's important. It's not about ignoring. Again, we get we get to the genius of the end. You need to learn to manage your strength and then focus." Uh, sorry, manage your weaknesses and then focus on on your strength.
0: I often think of it as mitigating the negative impact of your weaknesses
1: right exactly right, and
0: so exactly. it might be not even getting better at it. It might be you know delegating it or it might be, but there's like some negative impact, and you got to avoid that negative impact in whatever way you're going to so i i I might be too quick in saying this, but I think health explains itself, which is you know if you're if you're not healthy, if you're not, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not eating right, if you're not coming with your full energy to the work that you do, you're going to falter as a leader.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to point out one thing that, that, that is important to emphasize, and that is our relationship with stress. Uh, So historically, a relationship with stress has been a a negative one. You know, stress is bad. Stress leads to chronic disease. It leads to death. It leads to uh, suboptimal performance and so on. Well, today, more and more we're seeing through research is that stress properly managed is actually good for us. You know, I always give the analogy of uh, going to the gym and lifting weights. You know, when we're lifting weights, we're stressing the muscles. Not a bad thing. That's how they develop. The problem is when we don't provide time for recovery. That's when we get hurt. It's not the stress; it's the absence of recovery. You know, this is something that Jim Lawrence and Tony Schwartz talk about in um, the power of full engagement. So, this is something that we that, that we emphasize. Stress is great; it's important. Learn to manage it with recovery, and that's when you maximize. Uh, that's when you 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 improve your performance.
0: Right. You know, it's not. It's you know, you, you talk about this distinction, which I know Jim and and Tony do too. About you know, we're not in a marathon; we're in a series of sprints. What I'm seeing increasingly is people are running their sprints without any rest, without an interval. You know, like interval training is run as fast as you can and then recover even if it's for 10 seconds. And I don't see us stopping for 10 seconds. We're just running sprint after sprint after sprint.
1: And, and we're paying the price. You know, just like physically you would get injured, you would get exhausted psychologically, mentally. That is what we see all around
0: us. So here's my question about absorption. What I find often is that absorption is like happiness, which is it's great when you're there, but the pursuit of absorption is precisely the thing that can get in the way of absorption because you're never really fully in that space. How do you get around that conundrum?
1: Yeah, you know, the the, the nice thing about uh, absorption is that it's accessible literally at every moment in, in our life. It's simply about returning to present. You know, I love this. There's a wonderful book by... Uh, by a Vietnamese uh, Tibetan uh, monk uh, called the Joy, the Joy of Living, I believe. Um, and uh, what he talks about, there are oops moments where he says, you know, meditation is not about focusing all the time. It's about returning to focus, and the oops moments are oops, I just lost my concentration. Let me return to it. Oops, I lost it again. This is the essence of meditation, and therefore. The more oops moments we have, the better it is. Once again, it's like exercising a muscle, right? Um, and returning to presence.
0: I've heard that with meditation also. And the beautiful thing about that moment is you may be in the past or in the future or you may be worrying or you may be any number of things in your head. But the moment you recognize it, that's the moment that you're completely present. Meaning you can't recognize it unless you're in the now, and that so that moment in my meditation has always been very special for me, yes. you know like when when you discover the oops
1: that's right and and what's important to understand also about that moment is that it's accessible when you're sitting down and meditating it's also accessible when you're sitting down and listening to a, to a conversation or when you're participating in a, in a meeting so it's accessible anywhere and anytime.
0: So let me actually, in that vein, um, ask listeners in this moment the question, what are you doing right now? Right? <laughs> are you just listening to Tal and I have this conversation or are you doing something else at the same time? And is that something else distracting you from being fully present to, you know, to what you're listening, to the charm that exists between Tal and I? Are you, you, know, are you really fully present to this conversation or doing something else? Just, you know, just an oops uh, check-in. Let's say Um, uh, relationships. You talk about authenticity and positivity and, and I love that. And I think that's so true in my moments of freedom and connection and relationship. And what I also notice is it's the exact opposite Fear and vulnerability that often prevents us from getting to that place that we're we 're worried fear of vulnerability let 's call it and and the risk and this you know and the lack of safety or the fear or the past history that we read as you know as current you know we we mistake history for reality. And it's very hard for people often to get close in relationships and to be committed and connected in the relationships for fear of vulnerability, which is specifically what would get in the way of that authenticity and positivity.
1: Correct. And, um, you know, being vulnerable, again, there's wonderful work on this by uh, Brene Brown. Um, We pay a price for being vulnerable. We, we, We get hurt. Um, at the same time, the price that we pay when we're not authentic is a great deal higher and it's inevitable. And so many relationships, and here I'm talking about relationships at work or romantic relationships or relationships with our with our kids. Um, the number one predictor of long-term success of relationships is our ability to be to be real, to be genuine. Uh, within them with all the costs uh, thereof and again being authentic doesn't mean being um, thoughtless or it doesn't mean um, having zero guards on you know on a first date you wouldn't be able to be as vulnerable you shouldn't be as vulnerable and open as you are after 20 years of, uh, of a relationship um, but the aim should always be how can we reach you know higher and higher levels of authenticity and in order to do that we need to open ourselves up gradually
0: and, and what it does is it gives confidence to taking that risk to say, you know, if I'm going to really say what I'm feeling in this situation and it feels important, meaning if I don't say it, I'm going to be walked over. If I don't say it, you know, we're going to lose an opportunity here that not, not being heartless or mean, but saying something that feels important to me, um, if I don't say it for fear of the risk that I might lose the relationship for not saying it, that that is already an indication that it probably needs to be said because it means you're not showing up in the relationship in a way in which you're going to, um, that both you, the other person and between you will reap the benefits of really being in relationship. And it's worth risking whatever that loss is in order to take a stab at having something real and authentic.
1: Yes. Because not taking that risk is an inevitable loss.
0: Right. Um, you, your final point, the key point in terms of living a purposeful life, and I there's something I really loved about how you frame this, which is that the focus of goals is to think of them as means and not as ends. And you know, a lot of people can mis, uh, misinterpret the idea of purpose life in terms of just focusing 100% on the goals. Can you just talk a minute or two on that?
1: Sure. You know, so... Uh we go back to, to the beginning of our conversation when we spoke about the relation between success and happiness. You know, many people believe that becoming happier is about achieving that goal. is achieving that milestone, getting that raise, getting into that school or getting that job. Um, whereas what we, what we know is that at best achieving a goal leads to temporary, uh, well-being to a spike in our levels of well being, And then we go back to where we were before the, um, the path to happiness is not through the achievement of goals. However, at the same time, this is not to say that goals are not important, because if we do if we do not have goals, then we are at the risk of being all over the place, being distracted, um, and not being able to be uh, engaged and present. So we need goals in order to liberate us to enjoy the here and now. For example, you know, if I know that I'm I, I'm heading you know in this direction and I want to reach that. Um, At the peak of that mountain once i know where i'm going i can let go and i can enjoy the process so you know if i know that i'm working on a on a book you know i have that in mind i want i want this book out now i can let go and just focus on the present which is writing whereas if i didn't have a goal um, i would very often wake up um, not having a sense of direction not having a sense of purpose And that would lead to unhappiness.
0: And so in a sense, that goal, you know, the goal of writing the book is what gets you, I'm going to kind of pull some of these parts together, but it's what gets you to then say, okay, even if I'm not particularly feeling it right now, or if I'm not particularly in the moment, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write for my five minutes to get myself motivated. And hopefully I'll stay for an hour and a half and get some good writing done. Without that goal, you probably would never have to take the seat. But the goal itself can help us move out of the, I'm just going to do what feels good in this moment, to, I'm going to do what what you know moves me with a sense of purpose to achieve things that I want to achieve hopefully in a way that leverages my strengths that you know helps me to stay healthy and uses my energy in the way that my uh, that that will be strongest for me that allows me to be absorbed and I'm not entirely sure how to Intertwine relationships in there, but it's got to be in there somewhere
1: Well, it, it's in there if a relationship is an, is important for you if a relationship is in it's a goal It's an objective for us uh, and therefore even through difficult times um, We you know, we, we, we go through it Nietzsche once said if you have a, a what for every how becomes possible If you have a what for you know an important goal an objective you you're more resilient
0: well, and, and there's very, very little that I could think of that one can actually achieve with purpose that doesn't involve relationships in some way in order to achieve it. We just don't live in an isolated world in that particular way. The book is The Joy of Leadership, How Positive Psychology Can Maximize Your Impact and Make You Happier in a Changing World. Uh Tal Ben-Shahar, it has been such a pleasure. It has been my joy to have you on this podcast and a joy to be in this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Bregman Leadership Intensive, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you to Claire Marshall for producing this episode and to Brian Wood, who created our music. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.